Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. The state of Texas has heavily militarized the border with thousands of state National Guard soldiers and state troopers. The state says its multi-agency border enforcement effort, Operation Lone Star, has apprehended nearly 500,000 migrants. The state legislature recently passed controversial state laws that create a state criminal offense for illegal entry into Texas and that grant state and local law enforcement the power to arrest and deport migrants and asylum seekers suspected of crossing the border illegally. Governor Greg Abbott's enforcement orders are critiqued as being racist, unconstitutional, and deadly on one side, and praised by conservatives as necessary on the other. Critics say the recent drownings of a migrant woman and two children in Eagle Pass are the direct results of the state's border enforcement policies. Abbott's current militarization of the border is just one slice of history in a span of over a century when President Taft suggested a border wall be built to keep away people fleeing the Mexican Revolution. Dr. Alex Avina is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University. His expertise includes immigration and state violence in 20th century Mexico. He says the physical and rhetorical repercussions of anti-immigrant legislation and policy are felt across both sides of the political aisle. I think one of my critiques of the Democratic Party going back to Jimmy Carter is that they have ceded this political debate and its terms to a revanchist right-wing political movement in the United States that seeks to demonize migrants and continually push for more border militarization. What the Democrats have offered in the last 20 years is just a lighter version of that, a nicer version of that with some stylistic differences. But we have President Joe Biden building a wall as we speak. So there is obviously some stylistic differences, rhetorical differences, but the policy of looking at this issue through the lens of quote-unquote border security really limits what we can do. And it actually just creates more deadly, lethal consequences and obstacles for people who are seeking asylum and and refuge in the United States for very legitimate reasons. Often those reasons were caused by U.S. government policies in Latin America and other parts of the world. We need to push political parties away from that border security framing because I think that framing kills. And one of the things that we can do which is something that we can think about when thinking about the Mexican drug production problem, is to go to these borderland communities, to go to these localities and to learn from them. Because I I honestly think borderland communities are are showing us the way out of this um, with local organizations that have done so much work in the last 10, 15 years to help with asylum seekers and refugees. They have a different way of coexisting, different ideas of coexisting with neighboring communities on the other side of the border that I think is much more productive, much more humane than continuing to think about this issue through the lens of border security, that it just keeps getting ratcheted up. Once you enter that path or or that way of thinking of border security, it's going to take us to where we're at now. Floating buoys with like razor wire to drown people who are trying to cross the Rio Grande or to, you know, weaponize the Sonoran Desert to force people to have to cross through there. And then, you know, something like More than 10,000 people have died trying to make that journey since 1994. So one of the first things we do, we need to do is to really move away from the border security uh, lens. Uh, And this, I'm like ranting because I'm really passionate about this. Uh, Part of the reason is because my own parents were undocumented migrants. And, you know, one of the things that's always struck me following this debate is that the more the border becomes militarized, the more it becomes unsafe in in the rhetoric of some of these politicians in the United States. 
both things cannot be true, right? So I think we need to kind of really critique and try to undermine this framing of border security and to think of more humane options. My my suggestion would be to start with the borderland communities and to learn from them because they know how to live on the border and they've been doing it for, for centuries. Well, let's shift focus a little bit. The last time that we talked, it was in 2020, right before the pandemic. That's a whole other story. But um, that was sort of around the beginning of the term of Mexican president Andres Manuel López Obrador. And so he is now getting close to the end of his term. We were pretty critical of him at the beginning. And how do you think he has fared here in his tenure as president? Because we can point to uh, many incidents where he does not really sound like he is cracking down on uh, violence and drug cartels. And the one example that comes to mind is when uh, there was a gun battle and the attempt to arrest the son of El Chapo Guzman. And then he was let go because mm. you know the violence, it was just too much. We yeah. just had to let him go. And I think we also have to think that that kind of is true. Whenever you try to take down a drug kingpin, you present a vacuum of power that is going to be filled with violence until that vacuum has been cleared. So, I mean, that's a whole other story. But but let's let's talk a little bit about about Lopez Obrador and how you think he's fared here in these last few years. No, Norma, I think you're completely right. The the kingpin strategy is a total failure. But yeah, we that's going to take us in another direction. Um, <laughs> so, again, to reiterate the casualties, right? More than four hundred thousand people have suffered death in the form of homicide since 2006. Probably over 150,000 of those occurred during President López Obrador's tenure in office. Uh, Some of the bloodiest months that we've ever seen since the Mexican Revolution, you know, 35,000 people killed in a single month uh, occurred on his watch. Um, We started to see a decline in the murder rate around 2022. A meaningful decline was something like 28 homicides per every 100,000. It dropped down to 25, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's something considering the level, right? And that numbers right now in 2023 seem to have kind of flatlined instead of continuing to drop. With President Lopez Obrador, I think when he became president that we discussed last time, he said he was going to change Mexico's approach to the drug issue. And it's that famous or infamous phrase at this point, abrazos no balazos, which is like hugs, not bullets. And it's this weird thing happened where he kept pushing that rhetorical device when in practice, very little has changed. If anything, uh, Mexico has become more militarized. And I think that's my my one critique of President López Obrador is that, and we can think about, you know, how he was limited, you know, we can contextualize this and think about, you know, how limited his choices were. But it is, I think, undeniable at this point that he has increased the militarization of the country. The Mexican uh, military does have more power now, economic and social power. And their approach to the drug issue continues to be uh, militarization. Under his watch, they created the National Guard. That National Guard was supposed to be used against different drug trafficking organizations. It's been deployed to prevent refugees and asylum seekers from coming into Mexico and then making their way to the United States. And at the same time, the Mexican military seemingly has acquired even more power than it had before. So we can't investigate things like you know, state terrorism and violence during the 1970s that's referred to as a dirty war. There's a commission right now that's been working on this, but when they reached the point of getting at the military, their investigation was stopped. If we think about the 2014 disappearance of the 43 college students at Ayotzinapa, 
There's been uh, an investigation from people of the Mexican government, but when they get to the point of the Mexican military, that investigation is stonewalled. So I think that would be my one big critique is that the drug issue continues to be a, a very salient one. The hugs, not bullets approach was more rhetorical than an actual policy. And what we've seen since then is just more militarization, more power for the Mexican military. And as we've discussed, that cannot be the sole approach to this issue because it's not going to solve or address the structural deeper line factors that that explain drug production and, and why particularly young men, for instance, are joining these drug trafficking organizations in the absence of other options. But if we think about economics, you know, the super peso, people are very happy with a super peso in Mexico, right? Like their fiscal policy has been very conservative. So the peso has become pretty strong relative to the U.S. dollar. But for me, as based on the kind of history that I research and write about, I'm still concerned about the level of militarization in the country. And I'm concerned about the power that the that the Mexican military continues to acquire. Historian Alex Avina is an associate professor of Latin American history at Arizona State University. His research focuses on 20th century Mexico. When we come back, Avina talks about the presidential race in Mexico and why the current president's left-wing party may win again. There's a reason why, despite the high levels of violence, that López Obrador continues to maintain a really high popularity approval rating. Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. It's estimated that 300 to 400,000 people have been killed since Mexico declared a war on cartels in 2006. Prior to the current war in Gaza, Mexico was the deadliest country in the world for journalists, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Tonight, a fifth journalist shot dead in Mexico just six weeks into 2022. Mexican authorities are investigating after a Juarez news photographer was shot to death inside of his vehicle today. Journalists protested outside of the municipal police headquarters in Tijuana, Mexico, Monday, after a second Mexican reporter was killed in a week, underscoring the country's status as one of the deadliest for journalists outside a war zone. Alex Avina is not a journalist. He's a historian and academic who's written critically about cartels in Mexican politics. Avina himself has not been subject to threats over his research, but he is grateful for what Mexican journalists provide to their readers and to his research. So no, for Mexican journalists who are doing really brave reporting, they're the ones suffering the deadly consequences of their work. They're incredibly important work because... In Mexico, if you watch their media, I mean, it's very still, as I tell my friends in Mexico City, it's still very like Chilango centric. Like their view, (laughs) like the people who who are in Mexico City, in media, in the news, the way they view the rest of the country is through the lens of someone who's living in Mexico City. So it's kind of like how people outside the border view the border. Exactly. Right. right. Yes. That's what they I say Chilango centric and they, (laughs) they, they, they give me a look. But that's why we need local reporting. But it's incredibly dangerous, and dozens and dozens of Mexican journalists have lost their lives because of their reporting in places in dangerous localities. And others have just stopped reporting because they don't want to die. It's too dangerous for them and their families. And that is, you know, I depend on their work, particularly when I'm, I'm looking more at more contemporary stuff. And the Mexican journalists in particular are the ones who are suffering the lethal consequences of this and, and the repression. And for those who survive, some adopt a form of self-censorship 
as, as a form of self-preservation. So I would want all the attention to be on them, right? Because again, prior to the Israeli attack on Gaza, Mexico was an extremely dangerous place. It is, and it continues to be an extremely dangerous place for particularly Mexican journalists. Going back to what you were talking about a little while ago, you were talking about how the murder rate in Mexico, the homicide rate, it sort of flatlined and dropped a little bit. What do you think are the reasons for that? I mean, it still is an extraordinarily violent place, but what is behind that trend? I'm not sure. I think I would need to like really dive into the numbers and, again, the importance of locality and, and to look at these numbers from a local perspective and to see what parts of Mexico are responsible for the biggest drop. I think, you know, one area that has become much safer and it had always been relatively safe is Mexico City. There's been a debate about this in the last few months amongst scholars and academics and and journalists about whether the drop in crime in Mexico City is a real thing as a consequence of the mayor's policies, Claudia Sheinbaum, who is now running to replace uh, López Obrador. She's running as López Obrador's party's presidential candidate. So it really depends on on us diving into the data and the numbers and to really focus on the particularities of these different local contexts to explain it. I mean, it's not, uh, people in, in López Obrador's cabinet would say, well, it's our poverty alleviation programs that we've implemented in the countryside, direct transfers, increased educational opportunities. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I think I don't have a straight answer. And like I said, I would need to like dive into the, the numbers that, that uh, Mexico's National Statistical Agency has provided. And it's going to be really interesting to see what states and regions have seen a real drop. This is part of the frustrating thing is even if you get a drop in certain regions, then other regions step in and the numbers increase. And that's just a reflection of power struggles between different drug trafficking organizations. It's a reflection of perhaps changing smuggling routes, changing production zone areas that explain why in certain areas the violence drops and in other areas they start to rise. Well, you brought up sort of the next presidential election. I know you can't really foresee the future, but do you think that under a different president, looking at the candidates who are currently running, do you think that they're going to make a difference? I hope so. (laughs) I I mean, that's, that's always a hope. Uh, Claudia Scheinbaum is running as the the main presidential candidate for the Morena Party as part of a coalition called uh, Together We Are Making History. Junto Hacemos Historia. She's running against another woman, which is also like something that we should discuss or we can think about. The two main presidential candidates in Mexico are, are both women. Xochitl Galvez, who is a the candidate for a coalition of older Mexican parties, the PAN, the PRI, the PRD. She started off pretty strongly uh, when she announced her campaign and her candidacy, but I think she has really struggled to generate enthusiasm and support as of late. And Shanebaum is the clear front runner to win. Um, I think one thing to look back on these um, years that President Lopez Obrador was in power is that he's been blessed with a really weak, fractured political opposition. And that has allowed him to do the very thing that that political opposition does not agree with, but a lot of it has to do with their fecklessness and inability to attract popular support for their ideas, their programs. There's a reason why, despite the high levels of violence, that Lopez Obrador continues to maintain a really high popularity approval rating. And that, no doubt, will help Claudia Sheinbaum when she runs, when Mexicans go to the polls uh, next July. But I just want to stress, she's her own candidate. You know, one of the, the interesting debates that is occurred in Mexico recently is whether she's some sort of puppet of López Obrador, which I think is some friends have rightfully pointed out is, is a misogynistic 
paternalistic argument. Um, she's her own candidate with her own, she's from a different generation. She studied her, her doctorate in the United States, and she's had experience as mayor of Mexico City. So it's going to be interesting to see how she kind of crafts out her own path, her own political vision, separate from a president who's has had an outsized president in Mexican politics since the 1990s, which is López Obrador. I'm curious as to what their platforms might be, because here in the U.S., the platform is very heavily immigration and, you know, anti-drug, fentanyl, dangerous. And I'm wondering if they have maybe similar types of platforms that they're running on to try to gain support. Their platform and Morena's just in general, Morena's uh, vision, political vision, is one that forwards really strong programs related to social justice, to poverty alleviation. They are very clear about deploying a particular class discourse where they say, you know, we are with the poor, we are with the working classes, to the point where, you know, Lopez Obrador, one of the things that he's been criticized for is the way that he, the political opposition say that, that he demonizes them and he calls them fifis and he calls them, you know, all these derogatory terms that are meant to highlight class differences between the political opposition and a mass base of support for the Morena party that tends to be working class, that tends to be as the name of the party suggests, <laughs> darker skinned. Mm-hmm. And again, it's worked, right? Lopez Obrador and the party continue to maintain high approval ratings. But at their platforms are generally involve issues of social justice, poverty alleviation, of, of putting the, to use their terminology, putting the poor first, and then letting that dictate political and socioeconomic policy. Whether they do that in practice is a different story, but that's the messaging. Whereas the political opposition... They do things about entrepreneurialism, and this is very related to Sochi Galvez's own personal story as, as an entrepreneur, as someone who came from an indigenous family and then kind of like had her own small business and, and became a senator as a consequence of that go-get-it entrepreneurial spirit. But their other message is that Mexican democracy is under threat. And if you don't vote for Sochi Galvez, then you're basically betraying Mexican democracy. That discourse sounds familiar, right? Yeah. And I don't know if that's the most effective uh, way of achieving political success. So it's for us something to think about in terms of who is drawn to that kind of message, who will be motivated or convinced by that type of message. And at least what we've seen in Mexico, it's not people aren't convinced by it, um, even though you have very prominent media figures, media, you know, newspapers, uh, academics who are constantly writing about this. You know, Mexico's democracy is under threat. Uh, Morena is going to establish some sort of hegemonic political party like the country has witnessed in the past. Uh, vote for us. And it hasn't worked, right? So I think we need to go deeper then beyond that message and to think about why this political opposition in Mexico has failed to attract popular support. Sometimes I think the easy answer based on some of their social media posts or writings is there's a high dose of classism and racism still that shapes the vision of of some of these political parties or some of these prominent political figures in this opposition bloc that is trying to run against Morena in 2024. Well, Alex, is there anything that I haven't asked or that you want to talk about before we wrap things up? I would just stress again the the importance of of learning from locality, learning from local communities with some of these big global issues, and, and really to stress that borderland communities um, have a lot to teach us. And, and I hope that some intrepid U.S. politicians will will listen and, and really take that approach to heart because I think 
they have some of the solutions and, and approaches that we desperately need today. Dr. Alex Avina is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University. His research focuses on revolutionary movements, the Mexican left, state violence and terrorism, immigration, and the history of narcotics production and trafficking in 20th century Mexico. Avina's 2014 book is Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. His forthcoming project explores how political terror and drug wars have militarized the Mexican state of Guerrero since the late 1960s. It'll be called a war against poor people, drugs, dirty wars, and state violence in late 20th century Mexico. Hear part one of our wide-ranging interview with Alex Avina at tpr.org. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Marian Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at tpr.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.